Well, as we have um, journeyed through the Gospel of Matthew, we come to kind of a transitional uh, uh, passage of Scripture today. Some of the passages of Scripture are kind of succinct little Bible stories, like the temptation of Jesus. Eleven verses that contain a really kind of powerful, compelling little story. Or the baptism of Jesus that is really communicated in about four or five verses. Well, today we come to um, what Bible scholars would kind of call a theme in the outline of how the the gospel of Matthew is communicated. So in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, you have really three separate little passages kind of crammed together to get you from... Jesus' temptation to what is arguably the most important sermon ever preached. In Matthew chapter 5, we begin the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I have to tell you, there is no way to improve upon what Jesus has already preached. Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the longest recorded sermon set of teaching that Jesus ever put together. I can't tell you how intimidating it is to to preach a sermon that Jesus has preached. But there are all kinds of important information for us to really understand what it means to live for God. And so today, we will be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. If you don't have a copy of uh, your own scriptures in the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 683. And so you'll have the opportunity to follow along. Also, you'll find that in your worship bulletin, we have a, um, we have a little outline that you'll be able to follow along with the PowerPoint, uh, hopefully to make you remember and uh, to help the points to stick here a little bit. But it's a very important passage, even though it's a scene kind of uh, between two stories. Now, most of us know that Jesus in his ministry really only ministered for three years. Jesus had a three-year ministry. Now, when you look at the uh, Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't record anything about Jesus' first year of ministry. Now, John records a little bit about Jesus' first year of ministry. So after Jesus' baptism and temptation, he goes around preaching, doing good works, healing people, calling his disciples, but his first year of ministry is relatively obscure. We don't know a whole lot about it. As a matter of fact, we could take all of the information that we have for the Gospels and lay it out in a timeline, and we're really only going to see three or four things that happen in the first year. Now, we know that a lot more than that happened. It's just not the Holy Spirit didn't see to include that in the Scripture for us to know. So, you know, curious minds want to know, but you're not going to find out because it's not recorded in the Scriptures. Matthew really starts with the beginning of year two, which year two in Jesus' ministry was a time of tremendous popularity. I mean, everybody knew who Jesus was, and they were standing in line waiting for him to get to town. And then year three, well... Year three was a year of hostility, and it culminated with what we will celebrate at Easter, the crucifixion of Christ. And so as we look at our passage here today, uh, there are uh, three important things for us to recognize. We're going to fly through the first two points because point number three is really going to be where we camp out here today. And so uh, please look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. 
Now, when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he with, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If we were going to summarize what happens here in verses 12 through 17, it would be this simple statement, that Jesus is the light of the nations. Jesus is the light of the nations. And one of the things that I think is just fascinating here is we are four chapters in to the gospel about Jesus, four chapters in, and Jesus is not preached yet. And in this passage, in verse 17, it says, as Jesus withdrew, once John was arrested, Jesus began to preach. So finally, we get to hear Jesus' own voice instead of looking at these stories about him, about his childhood, and about his baptism, and about his temptation. We finally get to hear the Savior's voice and ask the question, what did Jesus say? Do you see it there in verse 17? From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, for some of you, that sounds strangely familiar. Flip back a chapter, and you'll see this is the very same kind of sermon that John preached about. Repent, turn, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we talk about the kingdom, this is not an issue of human effort. Jesus is not saying, hey guys, I'd really like to do something for you. So if as a group, you guys would turn around and repent, then, guess what? Then the kingdom will come. No, he's not saying, hey guys, repent so that the kingdom will come. He's saying, repent because it is on its way whether you're ready or not. The kingdom is coming. It is future, but it has, as he said, already dawned. You see, it's not just the bright, glaring sun of noon that is daytime. It is the uh, gentle glow in the morning when the sun isn't even yet over the horizon. You know that it's coming. And he's saying, guys, the kingdom is dawning. God's other world, where he rules completely, is breaking into our world through the gospel. That's great news. People who have lived in darkness are seeing the light. And who does he say this to? Well, we see this in verses 15 and 16. Jesus has withdrawn to the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, uh, you you may not know a lot about uh, the tribes of Israel, but you have probably heard of Judah, and you've heard of Issachar. Uh, You don't hear a whole lot about Naphtali and Zebulun. And this will get me in trouble with a few of you. But they're kind of like the New Jersey or the West Virginia of the United States. All you West Virginia Mountaineers are going to get me after the service. I'll be in the baptistry. You can't get me, so I'm all right. 
Zebulun and Naphtali, they're kind of backwoods. There's nothing really happening there. And as a matter of fact, the way the geography kind of worked, when you talk about the, the nation of Israel, Zebulun and Naphtali were in the far north. So when Jerusalem was fine and dandy and things were going well and God was blessing, Jerusalem really experienced those blessings immediately. But you know what? The outer fringes, it took a while, maybe never, for those blessings to reach them because they were on the fringes of the kingdom. So Zebulun and Naphtali, they experienced tons of foreign oppression because you you have kind of a buffer zone where if a nation wants to invade you, you kind of give up Zebulun and Naphtali. You, you let them kind of trudge their way through there and get in a little bit, and then you, you come back and you whammy them. So Zebulun and Naphtali had experienced tons of foreign persecution. They were not the place where the, God was seen much at all. And here's what's beautiful. That's the place that Jesus goes to kick off his ministry. He says, guys, you feel like nobody? feel like nobody cares? You feel like you're insignificant? Well, guess where I'm going to start my preaching ministry? In an obscure place. It's kind of like his birth. Where do you expect the king, uh, the king of the Jews to be born? In the palace at Jerusalem? And where was our Lord born? Humbly in a manger in a small sleepy town. That's the kind of Lord that we serve. And Zebulun and Naphtali, because of their existence on the border, uh, they are called uh, the, the, the Gal- Galilee of the Gentiles, the region of Galilee. Well, it's in the nation of Israel, but it's called Galilee of the Gentiles because there were tons of foreigners that lived there. And when he calls it Galilee of the Gentiles, it's kind of like calling America the melting pot. You don't have to go far to see people that don't look just like you. Maybe even on your own pew here today. We are a melting pot, and so was this area. And so this backwards, oft-neglected, obscure place, Jesus says, this is where my light will dawn first. Not to the people of privilege and position and power, but to the people who feel like they've been forgotten. And isn't it true, even today, that Jesus is most well-known with people who need him? If you happen to be um, well-off today, you've paid your bills, You don't have a credit card balance that rolls over to next month. Your car's paid for. You've got health insurance and a job that you enjoy. You know what's sad? Those kind of temporal things blind you to your need for Christ. Do you know Zebulun and Naphtali? They don't have the finer things in life. And when Jesus comes and says, I'm going to kick my ministry off here, he goes to people who know that they need him. And so, friends, today... You need him, and you may not even realize it. Because you allow the things of this world to so blind you that things are good when the state of your soul may not be good. Just remember this, both as a truth and as a warning. Jesus comes to those who want him. And the great news is, if you want him this morning, he's available for you. But that's not where the passage stops. Let's skip down to verses 23 through 25, and we'll come back to the middle section here in just a second. Look at these verses with me. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people in the news about him. Here's here's a current headline for you. 
the news about him spread throughout all the holy lands. The news about him spread all throughout Jerusalem. No, the news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Three short verses. And the best way to encapsulate the truth that's pictured here is that Jesus is the life giver for all ills. Do you see the list of things, of, of services that Jesus provided? You blind? Check. Are you hungry? Check. Are you demon-possessed? Check. Are you epileptic? Check. Are you depressed? Check. Is your marriage on the rocks? Check. Do you have a temper issue? Check. Come to me. Put my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Jesus starts out as a preacher. And it says that he went all throughout teaching and proclaiming the gospel. What I love is this is a good little teaser. Because if you want to hear Jesus preach, you will hear that beginning next week. We're going to spend weeks going through the Sermon on the Mount. The, the biggest total collection accumulated together that Jesus proclaimed at one time. And so it says Jesus started to preach. And we don't get much of his message here. We just get the report of the fact. Next week, we begin to unpack the message of what it means to be a disciple. But there's something else that we see here too. Jesus didn't just preach. He was engaged in all kinds of practical good works. And the good works weren't only done What's the best way to say this? I've turned this over my head a bunch this week. Jesus had an ulterior motive for doing his good works. Now, an ulterior motive sounds suspicious, but it depends on what that ulterior motive is. If the ulterior motive is for your good, then it's a good ulterior motive. If the ulterior motive is selfish, then it's a bad ulterior motive. Are you with me? You get that, okay? Here's the issue. When you are demon-possessed, when you are epileptic, when you are struggling, you know the one thing you're incapable of doing? You're incapable of really on a deep and true level to listening to the message proclaimed. Because what happens is whatever your problem is, is so in the front of your face that your ears don't work anymore. Does that make sense? And so Jesus knew. He, He came to preach and to teach and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. But he knew there were some people so crushed by life's circumstances that they needed something done for them so that they could take their focus off of their problem and begin to listen. I have wondered, this is not a good line of inquiry, But in a uh, group of people this size, how many troubles have we brought into the room this morning? I've probably got 15 or 20 I could put on my list. Anybody else? Do you happen to bring 
There's some things in your mind, some rocks rolling around that kind of give you some pause. Twenty hours a week for sermon preparation. And it all comes down to how people listen. Are there things right now in your life that make it impossible for you to hear God's word? Because you're so faced with the circumstances in front of you. I love it. Because in this passage, Jesus says, I'm going to do what I can to remove the blinders. I'm going to do what I can practically to be engaged in good works to help people see beyond their sickness to the teaching being offered. The problem is people wanted the miracles and they didn't want the message. People wanted free food for the rest of their life. Hey, we'll follow Jesus if he keeps doing those miracles. Mama don't have to cook no more. But then he started preaching after he did the miracle and people weren't quite so interested anymore. Friend, when you pray for God's blessings in your life, I know what you want. But do you know what God wants for you too? He doesn't just want to solve your your temporary problem. He wants you to hear his word. And so this truth that Jesus is the life giver is a precious truth. It's important for us that we don't divorce his preaching and teaching ministry from his healing ministry. The ulterior motive for his healing ministry was to make his preaching and teaching ministry more effective. And so one of the things that's great to see in this passage, as the story of Matthew unfolds, Jesus is building his church even now. He's building it. He is preaching and people are responding. He is healing and people are listening. And he is calling his disciples. Jesus is the general and he's putting his lieutenants in place. And his people are being healed and listening. They're following him. And they are ready for a constitution of sorts to guide them. And Jesus will give that to them next week. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the constitution for how a Christian is to think and live and be. And Jesus, as a good guide, will unpack what it means to follow him. And so we see Jesus' ministry and his fame are expanding. But then we come down to this middle section that I think is, in my mind, the most important part of these three sections here, and it's in verses 18 through 22. Follow along with me, please, in your copy of the Scriptures. Now, as Jesus was walking, verse 18, by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Well, after they thought about it for a few minutes and did a pro and con and now, no, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Friends, the third and final truth that we see this morning is that Jesus is the Lord of his disciples. Jesus is the Lord of his disciples. This is a hard statement, but it doesn't make it any less true. Jesus did not come only to die and rise again. He came to call disciples. 
You remember well his very last words, his commission to go to the ends of the earth, uh, preaching and teaching and baptizing all men in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to make disciples. (coughs) And there's powerful things that we can learn from the very few words that we see from Jesus' lips here. There are three things that I think he says that are helpful for us to unpack here just a little bit. And the first is that he calls us to follow. He calls us to follow. You see this in verse 19. He's walking by the sea. He sees Peter and Andrew, and he says to them, follow. According to the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, Peter and Andrew were already familiar with Jesus. You remember, Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. And in the Gospel of John, the minute Jesus walked into the room, you remember what John the Baptist said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes upon the sins of the world. And it says at that point, John started to lose his disciples because they began to follow Jesus. So at some point, Andrew and Peter followed Jesus during this first year of obscurity, but they have now gone back to their earthly profession, which is fishing. Since they uh, already knew about Jesus, it's clear that they were not following him full time, and that's why Jesus comes. Now, the thing that's interesting about this, when we talk about discipleship, is usually in Jewish culture, the students would go to the teacher and ask to be apprenticed. So they'd say, you know, Cecil Staten, I know you know something about woodwork. Can I come and apprentice with you and have you teach me? And Cecil would say, sure, young grasshopper. We need to work on how you swing a hammer, but um, yes, I can teach you. That's not what happens here. It's the teacher who takes the initiative to call the disciples. You see, in this passage, Andrew and Peter seem to be pretty happy fishing, as most guys would be. They're enjoying what they're doing. And Jesus comes and he interrupts their comfort and he says, follow me. Now, this whole idea of following is important. As a matter of fact, it's so important that Jesus, in essence, repeats the same story twice. Did you see it? In verses 18 through 22, it's told twice. He calls Peter and Andrew. He says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And then he continues walking along the beach. And then he sees two other brothers, James and John, in the boat with their father. And he says, follow me. And what do they do? They follow. Jesus tells the story two times to reinforce his point. And the second time, it even gets more personal. To to, uh, Peter and Andrew, he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. To James and John, they're in the boat. With their dad. Now, I don't know what you have to do to make a man give up his boat. But Jesus knew what it was. And they didn't just walk away from their nets. Um, Peter and Andrew were on the beach fixing their net. James and John were in the boat with their father, engaged in the process of cleaning up after a long day's work. And Jesus says, follow me. And they leave their father, and they leave their possessions. And they they admit that family cannot keep me back from doing what God wants me to do. 
Possessions cannot keep me back from doing what God wants me to do. And so they leave all. It's a radical obedience. And at this point, what do the disciples know? They may not know where exactly Jesus is leading them, but they know who they're following. Isn't that the the truth for all of us? Do you know where God will have you at the end of this year? If you do, come talk to me. I could use some some help. Because I don't know where I'm going to be at the end of this year. What circumstances is God going to bring in my life? But I know who I'm following. And that makes the question of where I'm going a tad bit irrelevant. Because I don't need to know. I need to know whose hand I'm holding. I need to know whose lead I'm following. And in a world, in our day and age, where everything revolves around self, self self-interest, self-control, self-fulfillment, isn't it refreshing for Jesus to say no? It's not about you. Follow me. My concern is that we have drunk the Kool-Aid of self-fulfillment so much that we may come to a generation that has completely lost any concept of what it means to follow Christ. So he says, follow. But he also says, follow me. He makes it personal. We're not just following a philosophy. We're not just following a way of thinking. We're not just following positive thoughts. We're following me. Who's the me? Well, in chapter 1, he is referred to as the Savior, the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the one born of a virgin who is fully human and fully God. In chapter 2, he's referred to as the King of the Jews, the new Israel, the one who people travel from afar to come and worship. Where is he who was born the King of the Jews? In chapter 3, we're told that he is the coming judge who is filled with the Spirit and loved by his Father. In chapter 4, he is the new Adam in the new Israel who obeys where the original Adam and the original Israel fell short. This is the me. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the one who has come to take the sins of the world that those who exercise faith in him might live. That's who you are to follow. Are you willing to do it? You see, we live in a world where we get to elect our leaders. And as far as I know, nobody has elected Jesus to any kind of office. He just kind of says, it's his. We don't kind of like that. Can we vote vote Jesus out of office? We can't. We can refuse to follow, but that's foolish, isn't it? He says, follow me. So here's the question. We're to follow. We're to follow Christ. But how do we do it? How do we follow Jesus? Well, he gives us a little Easter egg here, and he tells us exactly what he wants. We follow by fishing for men. He says, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. (laughs) Jesus defines their future work in terms of what they've already done. 
Now, you think if Jesus went to a bunch of architects, he would use the fishing analogy? I don't think he would. I think he'd say, hey, follow me, and we're going to build the kingdom of God. What would he say to a teacher? Follow me, and we're going to teach the way of God in truth and in purity. What would he say to you in your profession? I don't know. But Jesus personalized his instruction for their future faithfulness in terms of what they already knew. And so here's the thing that kind of kills me when people think about following Jesus. Because I hear this. If I sell out to Jesus, if I say, I'm all in, he's going to make me go to Africa and be a missionary. Why is it always Africa? And why, why do we assume that Jesus is going to take something that you don't really want to do and like make you do it unwillingly? What did he tell his disciples? He said, everything that I've been doing in your life up to this point that you haven't even realized that I've been involved is preparation for the work that I'm calling you to do in the future. Did you get that? That I don't know that I could say it the exact same way again. But Jesus had been preparing them by having them fish for fish. And he says, you know what? Maybe you will. I mean, listen, the disciples did go around the world. At least one of them went to Africa. But he, he, he put it in terms of what they already knew. You have been fishermen. You are prepared. We're going to take those same skills, that personality, and that tenacity, and we're going to apply it in this way. Friend, you don't need to be something that you're not to be of benefit to the kingdom of God. You think God made you by mistake to have the abilities and the temperament and the personality that you have? No. He wants you the way you are. Now, there might be moral issues that need to change in your life. But when it comes to who you are, God has made you the way he wants you to be. And so when we talk about fishing, especially for men, what do we know about fish? Well, the very first thing is they like their environment. They don't want to be out of the water. As a matter of fact, they will kick and scream. Well, I guess not scream. That'd be kind of hard to do underwater. They will fight all their worth to not get out of their environment. And so if we're going to be about the work of fishing for men, shouldn't we expect sinners to kind of love the environment that they're in already? Shouldn't we expect that it's going to be just a tad bit difficult to encourage them to say, friend, it will be better than you could ever imagine You're just not going to have to breathe water anymore. They like their environment. They are suspicious. What's that Rapala doing? It keeps kind of doing this. It's not swimming like a real fish. I'm tantalized. I don't know if I want to take a bite of that. It doesn't look normal. Friend, you better believe it. If your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors know that you're a Christian, they are suspicious of you. Because the word on the street about us is not good. We're hypocrites. To which I gladly say, yes, we are. We believe much better than we live. Are you ready to deal with the suspicion of people who go, you can't possibly believe the stuff that you say you believe. They fight when they're caught. And the truth is, even if you enjoy fishing, it can sometimes be frustrating. And you can spend a ton of money with very little to show for it. Fishing for men is in many ways like fishing for fish. 
But despite these truths, these hardships, these obstacles, these problems that we have to deal with, the fisherman is always optimistic. He's going to catch the biggest one he's ever caught today. And more than just being optimistic, he is opportunistic. I grew up in Florida. We've got the Everglades, we've got the ocean, there's fish everywhere. And my dad, if he can get off of work a half an hour early, you know what he's doing? He's going to a canal, he's going to a golf course, and he is putting it in the water. Putting it in the water. It doesn't matter if he's only got half an hour. It'll be the best half hour of his day. Because a fisherman is opportunistic. Anytime he has the opportunity to fish, he's going to take it. That speaks to kind of our heart and our motivation for fishing for men. A fisherman is equipped (laughs) and sacrificial. Ladies, if you have a man that has a passion for hunting or fishing, do you even really want to know how much he has spent on his stuff? The answer, no, you don't. (laughs) There is secret money that you don't know about that has been stashed somewhere in your house that he is going to use for that hobby. Because he is glad to sacrifice. He will eat beans and rice for the opportunity to go fishing. If that means that he gets a new boat, a new vest, a new plug, a new worm, a new rod or reel. He wants to be equipped. And if there's a new thing out there that's going to make the fish bite faster and harder, he wants it. How do we translate this passion to be equipped and to be willing to sacrifice just for the opportunity to catch a fish? Because despite his sacrifice and his equipment, he may, he may come home with nothing to show. But it never stops him from wanting to get out there as soon as possible again. Despite the suspicion of the fish, the fisherman will persevere. Because he might not have caught them today, but doggone it, he's going to catch them tomorrow. He's going to get them. And he's not going to give up. He's going to blame it on everything else. Well, you know, the sun wasn't out. A little too cloudy. Temperature was cold. Water's too deep. Water too deep? You know, um, I didn't hold my jaw the right way when I was casting. There's always an excuse. But he's going to get back out and he's going to do the business. He's going to be about the work of fishing. And friends, as we today talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ. Yes, Jesus is the light. And not only has he dawned, but the light is shining now through the glory of the gospel. Yes, he is the life giver. And if you're a Christian today, you've experienced that new life in Christ. You have new desires now that you never would have thought that you would have had before you became a Christian. But friend, he's the Lord of his disciples. And he commands that those who follow him fish. That we follow him and that we fish. And today, in a very sweet way, we have the opportunity to see some of the abundance of the act of fishing. We have the opportunity to baptize six people today. And this is not an empty ritual that a church goes through. But it's a chance for us to say that God has been faithful to himself when he says that his gospel 
will be a blessing to all the people of the earth, that he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has been faithful to his word. It has not returned void. And we have the opportunity this morning to welcome six new individuals who are saying, I want to follow. I want to obey. The question, friend, for you is how will you obey today? How will you obey this week? The God who has called will be faithful to equip if we will submit and follow. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this word. God, that you are the light. That you are the life. And that you are the Lord. We pray that as we have the opportunity to reflect upon the ways that you are uh, at work among us, that you will help us today to recommit our life to following you faithfully, to fishing as, as faithfully as we can, to obeying you in all ways. And Lord, if there be one here today that doesn't know what it means to follow you, that you will put the conviction in their heart to uh, ask questions that matter. And that today might be a new day for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.